Hi, I'm John Atak, and I uh, yet again welcome my delightful friend, Karen de la Carrier. Hi, John! Karen. <laughs> <laughs> here. Let me give you a warm hug. A Hi, warm John. hug indeed. Hi, John. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Yeah. And uh, I'm now saying this at the beginning of videos, which is that, that we're here to teach people. We have a great deal of experience of the material we're talking about, decades and decades of it. But we're also here to learn and we're here to answer questions if anybody has questions. And um, we're interested to be corrected if, if we make a, a mistake, whether trivial or otherwise. Uh, and we're part of a community, a community of, of understanding and, and trying to understand the world better and the things in it. So please contribute and join in. And I just want to add, we welcome opposing views. We don't stifle communication. This is not a site where if you if you oppose you we good good debate, opposing viewpoints encourage an expansion so that it doesn't look like a one-way propaganda like the Scientology TV channel. We're good, we're good, we're good. Look at us, look at us, look at us. We know everything. Yeah. We'll sell it to you. Yeah, really. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, you want to uh, say something okay. about There's breaking news I did want the audience to know. Scientology did a kind of a creepy uh, theft. They took some of Lear and Mike Rinder's podcasts and made videos stealing and thieving their content. So the video, when you clicked on it, looked like you were going to watch them, but very quickly it became a Scientology promotional video. So they actually stole Leah and her popularity to open their videos and then did the bait and switch, classic bait and switch. And the breaking news is, <laughs> Brace for impact. I am happy. The entire channel was nuked by YouTube. Not mm. one or two videos. The channel is gone. Mm. And Leah joyously tweeted this. Mm. Spike will put there. The channel got nuked. It's a big disgrace to have YouTube delete your entire channel, mm. that is not good. So I wanted to tell you one quick little story. Mm. About five or seven years ago, the cult of Scientology decided to nuke my channel. And they sent 10 videos they wanted taken down. Mm. And I had a little bleep of footage of David Miscavige in his Intervents and they said it's copyright trademark. <laughs> they could use layers, but this they were going to take me out. And you know, the fair use law when you're doing a whole education and you have a one minute clip to make your point that is completely legal. That is not. So I received an email from YouTube and it said, you know. They say you're violating copyright trademark and so on. And I wrote back and said, absolutely not. This is fair use, blah, blah, blah. And they, they sent that back to the cult. And the cult said, no, no, this is illegal. Da, 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 da. Now, YouTube simply hosts the videos. They're simply a host. They're not going to get into come combative senses. So YouTube wrote to me and said, they say that they will sue. Are you willing to receive a lawsuit? You, they will sue for copyright infringement. And I went to a lawyer and we wrote, a lawyer wrote a beautiful letter and said, sue me, go ahead, bring it on. Yeah. So then, YouTube sent that back to the cult. <laughs> it said, she says, sue her. And I gave the full address where they should serve 
I've got multiple lawyers that firewall me, you know, and I gave, I think I gave Ray Jeffrey in Texas, he represented Debbie Cook. I gave the Sue, bring it up. And then YouTube wrote me back and said, well, we, we sent your offer to be sued, <laughs> but, and they've got 10 days to do it. We give a timeline. Yeah. If there's no lawsuit in 10, in the meantime, they had taken down these 10 videos, suspended them, mm -hmm. pending the outcome. So they said, if in 10 days, there's no lawsuit, all your videos go back up and your strikes will be removed. So 10 days went by and nothing happened. Mm. My videos didn't go up. And I was, what, what on earth? They don't count Saturday and Sunday in the 10 days. <laughs> so the 10 days, Saturday and Sunday, plus it landed on a Saturday and Sunday. They don't, they, when they say 10 days, they mean Monday to Friday, yeah. right? Working day. And then suddenly I got then I got an email from YouTube and said, We put your videos back up, all strikes are removed, you are in good standing. And that was the end of that's the last time Scientology tried to meddle. Mm. They they went for it. They went for it. Mm. And I did a video and it was, you know, David and Goliath. I knew how much money they had. I was ready to battle. I was ready for a lawsuit on this, which they could never, they knew that I would use the fair use doctrine. They knew they didn't have a hope in hell of winning that, you know. Well, they have a tremendous amount of experience in, in copyright suits. I've been on the receiving end of a few. Um, I uh, was the expert witness in Russell Miller's case wow. where they wow. tried to stop his book here. They sued him in the US and they sued him in Australia. But probably the strangest part of this for me was um, among the first litigation that I worked on was um, when Robin Scott was um, convicted in Denmark. And um, there was this weird new idea, really, because uh, Scott had been the lookout for, the, for Ron Lawley and Morag Belmain when they lifted copies of the OT materials, the upper level materials in Copenhagen in December 1983. And um, it was suddenly put to the court there in Denmark that, that this was industrial espionage. <laughs> Probably the first time that esoteric, supposedly religious teachings have been considered to be business. Industrial. Yeah, it, it's about business. And it, and it, was, a, it was a strange, it was a strange period for me. I, you know, I was, I got the material together that, that got Robin Scott released, uh, ultimately, though he was convicted. They sent him home and said, don't come back to Denmark for five years or something. Um, but this idea that religious teachings were business, and this, to me, was a, a serious conflict, and uh, I still haven't resolved it. But again, as, as I said before we started, Ron Hubbard, I used to keep a picture of Ron Hubbard on my wall that was cut from one of their magazines and it got him, you know, doing that thing. And underneath it said, the criminal accuses others of things he himself is doing. But I used to have it on the wall just to remind me that whenever Ron Hubbard accused somebody of something, he'd done it himself. So in this case, they're, they're doing exactly that again, aren't they? Stealing material from other same people. Same old, same old. Yeah. Did Russell Miller win those lawsuits? Yes, we won all three of them. Wow. Yeah. Because you can buy Russell Miller's book. You can in you can indeed, and it's been republished. Um, yeah. And it's that a was it's a work you did to support that book. It's. I, I was I was involved from the very first. He he was commissioned by the Sunday Times in London to do a story about where Ron Hubbard was hiding, and that was at the beginning of January 1986. And Hubbard, of course, um, decided he would die. So we, we couldn't go and find him in Creston. And the Sunday Times decided to go ahead with the pieces. I was commissioned as a researcher and I gave Russell, because I'd been to so many publishers and lots of pub 11 publishers said they'd like to publish, let's sell these people a piece of blue sky, but how are they going to make any money on it? Because they'd be sued. They knew 
well, about the past books, like The Mindbenders by Vosper, I think particularly The Mindbenders by Vosper, um, which had cost so much in litigation, even though it sold 108,000 copies um, around the world. And so publishers were saying, we'd love to publish this book. In fact, Collins, who are the largest publisher in the world and would subsequently merge with Harper and Rowe to become HarperCollins, they mm-hmm. hung on for months saying they wanted to publish the book and then eventually that my champion there was defeated um Mm. and so i couldn't get into print so as part of of the deal i made with russell so the material would be known um i gave him my manuscript and curiously that manuscript came back to me a couple of years ago because russell gave it to chris owen and chris owen gave it to me and i've got a copy of my printout with Russell's notes on it saying which bits of it he was going to use, which included four chapter titles and various other things. I was also the researcher throughout the 18-month project, um, though you know, half of the book is, is Russell and his wife Renata's research, which was fantastic. You know, he's a brilliant writer. Uh, it's a great book. It's the, the only real biography of Hubbard. Um, well worth reading and what a great title barefaced messiah <laughs> barefaced messiah mm. yeah. 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 so yeah. we come again to the biography of, of Ron Hubbard in, in our topic today in that you we're going to talk about the famous affirmations and yeah yeah we put the background in for those that, that they're written 1946-1947 probably he's come out of the navy he's not crippled and blinded that's not actually true but he is trying to claim a disability pension from the veterans administration and you can get both his navy records and his veterans administration records through freedom of information and i did the week that he died i I put in for them um, as soon as i could get a death certificate and if you're willing to go through the, what, about 1,200 pages of those two files, and I did more than once, then you find this man who in 1947 is desperate to have psychiatric treatment. Yeah. He writes to the Veterans Administration and um, saying that he, you know, he has a mind that is severely damaged. Um, in fact, I have the letter right here. It's printed in full in this little book. Yeah. Um, and uh, just to give something of the state of mind of this man who had discovered the world-saving technique that had cured all of his war wounds, this is a letter of the 15th of October, 1947. After trying and failing for two years to regain my equilibrium in civil life, I am utterly unable to approach anything like my own competence. My last physician informed me that it might be very helpful if I were to be examined and perhaps treated psychiatrically or even by a psychoanalyst. Toward the end of my service, I avoided out of pride any mental examinations, hoping that time would balance a mind which I had every reason to suppose was seriously affected. I cannot account for nor rise above long periods of moroseness and suicidal inclinations, and then have newly come to realise that I must first triumph above this before I can hope to rehabilitate myself at all. Would you please help me? Sincerely, L. Ron Hubbard. So um, that was his actual condition in 1947 at the time when he's writing the affirmations. Affirmations are a method used, method of self-hypnosis. And so you repeat these things to them. Uh, Napoleon Hill was a famous exponent of these in the 1930s. And the, the one I remember is you look in the mirror and you say, I get a little lovelier every day. It hasn't worked for me, I must say, but... And he had, you know, these affirmations are pretty scary. Um, Yeah, they are. We really want to get into them. But first of all, on this letter to the VA Veterans Administration, what, based on what, 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 he was never a prisoner of war. What, what, what horror, torment or torture did he experience well they'd asked they'd asked him to go and fight in the war and that had upset him obviously deeply and uh, which is why he spent the last year of the war pretending to have ulcers in oh. fact 
we, there is no evidence that he had ulcers. They did x-rays and didn't find any. Um, but he spent the last year of the war high on phenobarbital, barbiturates, and whinging about um, you know, his eyesight diminishing. He couldn't get into the Navy when he first applied before the Second War because his eyesight was too poor. And um, so he, he had, um, he, he gave an interview in um, November, December 1950 um, to Look magazine, oh. in which he said that um, he had ulcers, conjunctivitis, pink eye. Um, uh, he'd damaged his hip when falling down a ship's ladder, and he had something wrong with his feet. And those were the war wounds in 1950. That was the whole list. Of course, by 1965, in my philosophy, he's uh, crippled and blinded um, and, and in a very miserable state, really. You know, there are different stories that he tells over the years that contradict one another about what had happened. So, no, I think he was just scared of, of um, having to face the enemy, which he never Got did. He never saw combat. Got it. Now, affirmations mm. are simply sentences which are decisions mm. or postulates for the future, meaning that that sentence by self-hypnosis is affirming, affirmation, affirming yeah. that this will become reality. Mm. That's the definition, right? Affirmation. Yeah. It, it, now, it's John, Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking, which yeah. Donald Trump grew but, up But this isn't just... A, thinking and flash thought, this is hip repeating these in a self-hypnosis, <laughs> implanting self with this. Yeah. Now, what yeah. is disturbing is how evil some of these affirmations were. Men in, are your I, slaves. Yeah. All men shall be my slaves. Now that actually worked out the sealed are indentured slaves. Mm. Your that was slave always his from... intention, yeah. That was always his intention to, to dominate other people. And, and it's very clear through his history. There's a 1938 letter, uh, which we call the Skipper letter because it starts Dear Skipper, written in August 1938, which mm. again is in my little book there, and, or a part of it is. And he, he says in it, writing to his first wife, Polly, who he called Skipper, Margaret Louise Grubb, her um, born name. And he writes to her and says that his only goal is to smash his name into history. Yeah. That's all he wants. He wants to be famous. And you go, that's, that's really how, you know, how ridiculous to, to want. He doesn't want to do good for anybody or help anybody. And throughout his life, he, he was, um, I think he was a very insecure human being who, who wanted power over other people. And that was, that was significant to him. That, that was a driving force. And, and exactly as you say, with the Sea Organization from 1967 onwards, he actually did create a slave workforce. And people who were enslaved him because they believed in him because they believed in the positive things he said and and that they felt you know that they were willing to as you did to give up the comforts of life to forward this incredible purpose which was to save humanity to save this sector of the galaxy to save the universe whatever um very a star high goal as he put it and that was not really what he was doing. What he was really doing was elevating L. Ron Hubbard to the state of, um, as his son Nibs said, you know, he was making gods. So he was a god maker. You know, he was the step up above gods. And no matter how godlike any of us became, none of us would be able to discover any technology that helped others spiritually. The only person who had that capacity was him. Oh. Which eventually led to his claims of being God, which uh, are buried how, here and there. How well put that is. That's really the God maker who yeah. had the power to make other gods. Or make so, others believe that they were gods, as the case really was. You know, I've yet to see any psychic feat performed by 
a Scientologist and I've now had 47 years and I'm waiting, you know, but it's not happened yet. Mm. And yet they believe they can. Right. They believe they can. They believe yeah. they change traffic lights and move clouds and stuff like that. Well, you're supposed to achieve all that by doing six levels of exercising meat, exercising attached spirits. Mm. People do it year in and year out multiple times a day with the hope of achieving godhood or a godlike thing. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is, after 20 years of this, 30 years of auditing their attached spirits, they die off of cancer, heart attacks, diabetes, just like any other person that never addressed an attached spirit. And, and often earlier in life than other people because they don't get medical treatment rapidly enough. Yeah, yeah. Now, John, I think what is most disturbing in the affirmations is what Hubbard said about women and what he wanted to do with women. Yes. Can you read out the exact affirmation? There's two or three of them. Of, I mean, <laughs> they're pretty heavy, like... To, to write this, to self-hypnotize hip, yourself, to want this to be reality. Can you read out the... My mind is still brilliant. <laughs> that masturbation was no sin or crime. Yet Scientology could make masturbation a crime. Yep. It wasn't a crime for Hubbard. Well, it wasn't a crime for him, yeah. Um these that these words and commands are like fire and will sear themselves into every corner of my being making me happy and well and confident forever well that didn't work you can tell all the romantic tales you wish but you know which ones were lies you have enough real experience to make anecdotes forever stick to your true adventures masturbation does not injure or make insane your parents were in error <laughs> Yeah, they were about that. Uh, on and on and on. Yeah, uh, material things are yours for the asking. Men are your slaves. You will live to be 200 years old. Well, you will always look young. <laughs> it does say after that money will flood in upon you, and that did prove to be true. Um, there's so much of this stuff, isn't there? There's also a little reference here to automatic writing which it's a sidetrack, but you can do automatic writing whenever you wish. I talked with uh, Joe Scott, who was Hubbard's secretary in 1954 in London. And she said to me, this was 30 years later, she said to me, he turned around to her one day and said, Dianetics was done by automatic writing. And it was dictated to him by the Empress. And I was able to explain that to her, that, you know, that he had this holy guardian angel he called the Empress. Um, and that I think it's an evolution of a science. He talks about using automatic writing as a method of research. So, um, crikey. Oh, and you do not masturbate. Apparently, there's nothing wrong with it, but he doesn't do it. Uh, snakes are not dangerous to you. But he just wanted the couple where he said he, women, that he could just use women for sex, even yeah. if it was so pretty violent also um, um, testosterone blends easily with your own hormones you have no fear of what any woman may think of your bed conduct you know you are a master you know they will be thrilled you can come many times without weariness many women are not capable of pleasure in sex and anything adverse they say or do has no effect whatever upon your pleasure what horrible man you have no fear if they conceive what if they do you do not care Pour it into them and let fate decide. Mm, that's uh, pretty brutal. It is. Um, of course, when he announced uh, the discovery of Dianetics to his agent, uh, Fori Ackerman, um, in that first letter from Savannah, Georgia in 1949, he doesn't talk about any benefits. He, talks, he says it will make more money than anything else he's ever done and that he can rape women without them knowing. Yes. Um, he, he was a little bit misogynistic, I think we could say. So it's not 
not so much that he just wrote something like that. It's that he wanted to self-hypnotize himself with such thoughts. Anyone can have a spontaneous negative thought, but then on purpose, deliberately, to want that implanted or ingrained in your brain or mind or whatever, that's that's a different level. And Steve Hall um, worked at Goldbase in Face for 22 years, and he actually read this for the first time at InFace. Yep. Where in marketing, when you do a CSW uh, completed staff work, staff work, you have to attach every attachment that supports such a thing. Mm. And the affirmations were there. And he, he read it on Interbase where it was attached to a document traveling up the command chain. So sealed hierarchy are very aware of this how interesting yes oh. and i sent you a, he he did a debrief to tony ortega mm. where he explained how this happened yeah. and how he read it at inface and i also sent you that link mm. in in the bullets i sent you so yep. if you just click on the tony ortega you can read the story and here's steve signed for a billion years and he's imagine being reading this as a seal member when you pledge to join this group for one billion years you know john the very seal billion year contract i'd like to show pictures of it spike will help actually says it, the the words are a little bit coded but it says you will do whatever the CEO demand of you. On demand, you will obey. Doesn't say obey. Follow and uphold command intention. It's the code of a CEO member that you will give up your self determinism for the next thousand million years and be Hubbard's slave. Follow and uphold command intention. And every week people join, but then there's the other side of the coin where every week I heard from a well-informed source that there's no less than 100 sealed members I saw, wait, waiting in line for their leaving sec check in every sealed base. Mm. There's 100 waiting in line because you can't leave and there's a bottleneck because there are not enough people who can do these interrogatories. Yeah. So yes, they're bringing them in, but there's also a revolving door where people <laughs> sign a billion years and last one year, two years, five yeah. years. Two weeks gone. sometimes. Yeah. Is there somewhere in particular, this is quite a long article on the bunker. Um, is there something in particular you wanted to uh, extract from it? Well, uh, there were two documents that mm -hmm. Steve Hall was aghast at. One was the affirmations, uh -huh. and the other was G. Hubbard stating that he was the Antichrist and Jesus was a lover of young boys. Yeah, which, which was originally the opening statement of the OT8 material, the highest. It was, highest. it was. And, and I could not believe it. Yeah. When okay. I read that, we, we, when I read that, I went, John, I said, this is, he's got a lot of enemies. This is propaganda. This is, I could not. Well, Steve, Fish, Steve Fishman first released this material, and Fishman is something of a confidence trickster. Um, yes. So when I first saw that, I, I just went, this can't possibly be true. be true. Then this guy, George White, released it, having done the course. And in 2015 at, at Toronto at the Getting Clear conference, um, Jesse Prince, who, of course, was the head of uh, Scientology technology at the time, confirmed to us that this had indeed 
been the opening statement. But after about a week, they had to take it off because people were, you know, they didn't want to do it. They didn't want to carry on. And so the statement we have here is, um, unlike just about everyone else, I never got bent out of shape over the statement that Jesus was, this is Hubbard speaking, that Jesus was a lover of young boys and men because of the neglected passage in the oldest and least embellished of the Gospels, Mark 14, 51. That's not actually true. The oldest and least embellished John is probably the oldest, but let's not get into nitpicking here. Jesus has left his disciples in the lower part of Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, and they fell asleep. Soon afterwards, Judas came with the crowd to take Jesus away, and a young man followed him, which is to say Jesus, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Scholars do not know who this boy was. The passage exists only in Mark and nothing else in the New Testament or even the Hebrew Bible, as I understand the scholarship, provides any basis for comparison. I do believe, too, that a subculture of young male uh, pre-body hair prostitution existed in the Greco-Roman world. Several decades ago, the biblical scholar Morton Smith claimed that while separating sheets of paper covering ancient books in a Middle Eastern monastery, he found a letter from a church father claiming that Jesus likely was initiating the youth into esoteric Christianity, a claim in line with Gnosticism. Years afterwards, another scholar alleged fraud on Smith's part. In any case, no one knows what the passage means. And I've got no idea where he's going with this. You know, this you know, having read the Gospel of Mark several times, I don't know what Hubbard is, is seeing that I and many other people completely fail to see. Um, where are we? Do you want to go to the next one? I will soon leave. No, I want to just pause and examine that. Yeah. So a lover of uh, young boys and men is, yeah. is the allegation that Ron Hubbard I is making against um, Jesus. This could be very offensive to Christians watching your show. And again, we are just quoting Hubbard. Yeah, absolutely. This is not, not our belief. That I believe, you believe, whatever. I, I do believe there was a man called Jesus, even though Hubbard later said there was no Christ. It yeah, was all the man on the cross but, is a fabrication, yeah. Yeah, but the, the thing is this, that first... If there were 184 students that did the very first OT8, okay. 184 pages. That was in 1988? I thought it was 87, somewhere there, right, right around yeah. 87. Now, uh, it costs about a million dollars to get there, literally. And I'm counting all the snagging you for donations and your bridge and years of auditing your attached spirits. You see, you, you don't automatically get the next OT level. You've got to get RTC and OSA clearance. And you've got to keep up your payments to the International Association of Scientology. If you're like not contributing to them, the ethics officer says, well, what, what are your contributions? What, what have you done? So it's by invitation only, 184 people made the grade. Mm. Religion has been around since 1950, so 1987. Uh, how many years is that? 37 years. In 37 years, they cobbled together 184 students. Mm. And it was catastrophe, John. Mm. You know, some people with a stiff British upper lip, stoic, sat through it, silent, zip that didn't want to. Be. <laughs> if you're negative and somebody knowledge reports you, that's another $50,000 for interrogatory sex checks. So people were stoic and then they left. And of course, what else is said in that? claims to be Lucifer. He claims to be the Antichrist. Yep, all in the same document. Yeah. Much of those 184 left never to be seen of again, like the George Whites of the world. Mm. 
I had a particular friend called Christine who had literally a mental breakdown. I don't, she came back from this OT8 and she spun and went what the church called type three. She literally had a full-blown mental breakdown. She recovered and went into Buddhism, never to, never to. <laughs> but they saw that this was, you know, they saw this. Now, in this issue I sent you where Steve Hall debriefed to Tony Ortega, Miss Cabbage visited with him and Dan, uh, the so-called biographer that never writes a biography ever, you know? Yeah. They can't, they can't be, the church can't issue a biography. After books like yours, John, and Mad Men or Messiah, Barefaced Messiah, oh, they cannot, there's just too many disclosures. Mm. They can't. The affirmations alone, which Wikipedia have every single clause, people can just go to Google and put in L. Ron Hubbard affirmations, Wikipedia, and you can read all this for yourself. Mm. Anyway, Ms. Cabbage walked up to Dan and Steve and with his piercing blue eyes, Ms. Cabbage asked Steve, watching him intently, what do you think of this? And Steve, Steve knew he was on a precipice. Mm -hmm. If you answer Ms. Cabbage wrong, you can be walked straight to SB Hall or the dungeon or whatever you need to hear. I mean, Ms. Cabbage is total power over your life. He is the slave master of this organization. Absolutely. So he was thinking 100 miles an hour, how do I answer this? And he thought, I'm going to play it safe for my own survival. And he said, well, I, I think it's cool. He, he thought to be neutral <laughs> would be safe ground. And Scavenger was delighted to hear that. But Steve tells the story breakdown by breakdown to Tony Ortega and how he, but after that, Steve plotted how he could get out of it base. Once he, I mean, the con becomes so obvious when you truly experience something like this. Now, David Miscavige, all by himself, he doesn't take orders, he doesn't listen, he doesn't have any, he doesn't have, Scientology brag about having a qualifications division, which is supposed to internally correct you, but there's no internal correction whatsoever. There's no watchdog over miscarriage. Huh. His word is biblical law in, in the cult, the way he's followed. Huh. And Steve, Steve had, Steve knew that if he threatened suicide to kill himself, they would offload him as type three. And that's the ploy he used. He, he said he was suicidal. He was nowhere near suicidal. Mm. But to get out of in-base without two years of sex checks, because if you're already type three, what they consider lunatic wanting to kill yourself, they're not going to keep you there to give you more interrogatories in case you... <laughs> so that's how it got exposed. Mm. But back to... Back to... What... What... Now, you're the scholar. You are the, the Scientology scholar. What benefit would Hubbard possibly get by saying he's Lucifer? Now, now remember that David Miscavige single-handedly decided to put this on the opening page of OT8. He decided it. He did that. He got this catastrophe result. People fled and then they tweet. They, there's five different versions of OTH, which is absurd. A level is a level. 
There's not different editions and versions of it. Was Hubbard, t t tell me about, as a scholar, looking back on it, did Hubbard really believe he was the Antichrist? Yes, because yes. you know, huh? Yes. He believed that. Yes. So yes. was he already somewhat, um, was he getting into, uh, see, Dr. Denk predicted years before this, he told Bill Franks confidentially that Hubbard had the onset of dementia, Alzheimer's. Yes. So is this a man in some kind of dementia or prophet? See, this is why I don't believe it. He wrote 10 books called Mission Earth. Incredibly coherent. That's a thriller. I read them. Yeah, well, they're incredibly coherent because of the editor, not because of Hubbard. I, inter I interviewed Robert Vaughan Young, who edited those books, and he said it was a nightmare bringing wow. any coherence to them. That they're, that I mean, the, the thing I particularly remember is him telling me that there were characters in the book that he had to exclude. And one of them was a, a Native American, as Hubbard put it, a First Nations squaw, who he called Tight Pussy. And mm. Vaughan was able to write that character out, but it was because Vaughan was a really good writer that he was able to knock this. You know, Hubbard only drafted things the first time. You know, you get it once and that was it. He didn't have the patience to look at his own work and, and remake it, which is why there is only one Scientology book that Hubbard wrote, and that's Dianetics. All of the other books are compilations, one way or another, made by other people, Richard DeMille, uh, Alfia Hart, or John Sanborn. Uh, because Hubbard didn't have, you know, he just said his attention deficit disorder, his hyperactivity was such that he was bored as soon as he had to look at his own things. But the Lucifer story is foundational to Scientology. This didn't just spring out of the demented mind of Aaron Hubbard, you know, in the early 1980s, as he was on his way to death. This is something that is there long before the beginning. When Hubbard was 16 years old, he read Alistair Crowley's Book of the Law. So we're talking about somewhere around 1927. Hmm. And he reads the Book of the Law, which to get an understanding of Scientology, you know, one of the complaints that was made about me by Scientology was that I had a lot of magic books. And it's true, I do. Um, because I had to understand Hubbard, who had read these books. And in going through Alistair Crowley's work, and, and I found it very difficult to read Crowley, I find him a very objectionable human being. Let me put it that way. He was a cocaine freak, wasn't he? He was a cocaine freak. He was a heroin addict by the time. Heroin addict. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, he will have used a, a broad range of drugs. And he mm -hmm. boasted about that. Mm -hmm. There is an ethos in, in the work of Crowley. Crowley is a confidence trickster who becomes involved with Golden Dawn, where the poet W.B. Yeats is a member. And these are people who are practitioners of ritual magic. They believe that by performing magical ceremonies, they can gain power over deities and over spirit, spirits. And remembering the affirmations, but also says, elemental beings are my slaves, which is to say body thetans. And here's a first principle of magic. In Disney World, the idea is that magic is performed by spells. These mm -hmm. are incantations, you make statements and these things will happen. It is, made through, it is made through talismans. So in Vodouan or Voodoo, you have the mojo, you know, the little bag with the bones and the coin and things in it, which will give you power. You have the black cat bone. These are talismans. These are things that are meant to be instruments of power. But the reality of ritual magic is rather different. The reality, if one reads uh, the book of Abramel in the Mage, for example, which I've had the misfortune of doing, we find that magic is performed by elemental spirits. So what you do is you take over genies or discarnate entities, body thetans, gadons, dibuks. There are many words for these beings throughout the world. You take power over these beings and you then use them 
to travel and do your will. Mm. And so Hubbard was uh, educated into these practices from the age of 16 onwards, and he believed in them. Mm. And if we then look at Crowley's teaching, Crowley is saying that Christianity is wrong because it confines people with conscience. Mm. And what Crowley wanted was to be above that. He wanted magical power. So one of the things that he did um, as a young man was he would keep a razor blade in his pocket. And any time he violated his own will, he would cut himself, Ooh. kind of aversion therapy. And the idea was basically to be able to do things that were offensive to other people. That The way you came to control your own will and become powerful was to be a devil, was to be an objectionable and awful person. And that meant that you had to break taboos. You had to do things that were considered immoral by society. Crowley frequently complains about the moralizing hypocrisy of Christianity, and I can understand that criticism if, if and when there is hypocrisy. But he felt that to obtain power, it was necessary to do immoral things. And this became pretty extreme with Crowley. Some of the more difficult to obtain Crowley teachings, I managed to get my hands on them, um, there is one particularly despicable, for me, particularly despicable aspect where he talks about the excitement he has at taking leucorrhea, which is the fluid that is created when you have gonorrhea. And this would be part of his sexual practice to be dominated by a woman who had gonorrhea and to take this stuff. So you're dealing with somebody who's got some pretty weird things going on. There were many suicides around the Crowley OTO. Uh, there were many criticisms of him. Uh, he was on uh, Adolf Hitler's hit list because so many of Hitler's cronies had been members of the Tool Society, which was a sister group to the OTO, which was a German organization that Crowley came to take over. Crowley's objective was to be the Antichrist. It was to you know, overtake Christianity. So when in 1946 you have this pivotal moment where Hubbard, far from being crippled and blinded, is actually down in Pasadena in 1946 and has wormed his way into the household of Jack Parsons, John Whiteside Parsons. Parsons is a remarkable man. He was the developer of solid rocket fuel. There would have, wouldn't have been any NASA missions without solid rocket fuel. So somebody else would probably have worked it out, but he's the man who did work it out. And he was totally devoted to Alistair Crowley's teachings. So in his household, magical practices, what is called sex magic, and magic is spelt with a K here for some reason, were going on. And there is a correspondence between Alistair Crowley and Carl Germer, who was the head of the OTO in California, and to whom Parsons answered, where Crowley is criticizing the ceremony that Hubbard and Parsons performed. This is called the Babylon working, you can get the whole ceremony. Uh, it was all transcribed. And basically what happened was while um, Jack Parsons masturbated, Aaron Hubbard watched and called out this incantation. It took me a long while to work out, but I did work out that this was actually the eighth working of the OTO. OTO8. And what they were trying to do was to bring uh, a woman to them who would be the mother of the whore of Babylon, the scarlet woman of the revelation of St. John the Divine, which is the last book of the, the Christian New Testament. And this would bring, bring the beast 666 into the world and overthrow Christianity and bring the, the, the reign of Satan on earth. So this was Hubbard's objective in 1946 out of which comes Scientology. And I would say that Scientology is a furtherance of this idea. It's to enslave a large number of people to bring a lot of money and power to him. But what he was trying to, he had various things that he was trying to do. One of them was to create his own country. And so, you know, he tried to, I think it was part of Mozambique he tried to buy and they refused to sell it to him. But putting the seal out there to have his own little nation, his own group of people who would then 
with none of them knowing what they were actually doing. It's all two-faced. It was all exactly the opposite of what he was saying. He was creating his own paramilitary force. I mean, initially it was said that the Org would have to train in judo. They would have weapons training. They, of course, get put into Coast Guard uniforms, Navy uniforms. And he's creating this force. And out of this, he's creating Scientology. And for me, and not many people have, have come to this conclusion, but I am very certain of it. Just as the Babylon ceremony is called a working it is, it is an attempt to bring down the force of the devil, the force of Lucifer to earth, and use that force for Hubbard's means. In the same way, Scientology is a magical working. It is a way of disabling people so that they become enslaved and will worship Hubbard. That worship is seen in two places on the bridge. The first is the old power processors where people are meant to have the revelation that Hubbard is the source. Yes. He is the origin. That was then replaced. It was pushed, pushed aside. It's very rare for the power processes to be delivered. Certainly after, what, 1982, somewhere around there, you just don't hear of them anymore. People are jumping to clear without doing what was grade five the power, and grade 5A, the power processes. So they're not doing that. They're now going to do that at OT8. At OT8, they're going to be taught that Ron Hubbard is the source, that he is Lucifer, that he is the creator God out of whom the universe came. And this should lead then to the next phase in Scientology, which will, will come after Miscavige if it comes at all, where some sect will spring up and say, you know, he, he was just as Jesus was, he was a divine force on earth. And we're certainly, the, the way that Hubbard is treated by many Scientologists as this infallible, brilliant, divine man, we're certainly seeing some of that. In Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky, it was very interesting um, when um, Marty Rathbun in a blog uh, posted somewhere around 2014, 2015, he said he'd realized that Hubbard wished to become a god. And I wrote to Marty at that time. He didn't reply and said, um, yeah, read the summing up in uh, Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky, published in 1990 and not altered at all since then, where I explain that Hubbard is trying to become a god. He, and he seems to be following a model that was found in ancient Rome and in China, where by people invoking your name, I want to smash my name into history, 1938. By people invoking your name, you will be a, a deity. There's a, a touching moment in the wonderful TV drama that was made from Robert Graves' I, Claudius and Claudius the God, where Livia, who is the uh, last wife of the Emperor Augustus, realizing that Claudius will become emperor, says, make me a god because then I will live forever. And I think Hubbard is caught up in that, this bizarre idea that somehow by his name being repeated, he will continue to exist. And that's all caught up in his God fantasy. So it goes right back to the 1920s. We find it again in 1946. And of course, a woman did come along. A woman called Marjorie Cameron came along and became, after... Hubbard had run off with Jack Parsons' girlfriend, uh, Sarah Northrup, um, Sarah Hollister, as she'd later be. Hubbard goes off and Parsons actually has a relationship with Cameron, who's arrived in answer to their invocation. She doesn't have a child. Crowley calls them Hubbard and Parsons louts. Um, there was a mistranscription and usually the letter when uh, printed says goats but but i'm pretty sure the original was louts yet he's criticizing them for trying to bring into being what he would call a moon child he wrote a novel called the moon child which is a, the incarnation of a, of a divinity through human form um, so yeah all very complicated I, I wrote a paper called hubbard and the occult and there's a, a chapter in 
Blue Sky called uh, His Magical Career, which details um, these events. But yeah, I think he believed he was Lucifer. And I think the, the part that the dementia plays, and I'm pretty sure looking at what happened, certainly in 1983 onwards, that there's something badly wrong with Hubbard's mind by this time. Um, you know, he's, he's not keeping it together anymore. And so he decides he's going to make this boast. He decides that this secret that he's kept in, again, looking back at, at um, his oldest son, Nibs. Nibs worked with him from 1952 to 1959. He was his second in command, effectively. And he's been thoroughly discredited by Scientology to the extent that most people don't believe anything that Nibs said. Now, there is an incredible manuscript called The Telling of Me by Me. It's in the UCLA collection of Scientology material, and it should be published. I was, I was allowed to, to see a copy of it with the understanding that I wouldn't share it, and I haven't. I've had it in my possession now for ooh, seven or eight years, and it is a revelation because if you separate out what Nibs Hubbard says his father told him, which he believed that his father had the, the, the door to, you know, he could open the gates of hell. You know, he believed his father was a supremely evil human being. If you separate out what he says that is based upon what his father told him, you know, that he got the magic from the same person that Hitler got it from, for example. That, that's just what Hubbard said. If you look at then what Nibs says he experienced with his father, I think, most of what he says is true, and some of it is horrifying, particularly, and we come back now around this uh, circuit, to his treatment of women, that Nibs Hubbard gives a description. He says that what his father liked to do was to give contraindicated drugs to women. Now, we know from Hubbard's own writings he admitted to having been a barbiturate addict, he said he made himself a guinea pig in one of these experiments in the lecture and coming off phenobarbital is particularly hard. So he admitted addiction to barbiturates. He advocated the use of amphetamines. So you have a downer, a barbiturate and an upper. And if you mix the two together, and I don't recommend this to any of the children at home, then what you get is a kind of blank state. And in that state, it would appear Hubbard raped women. Uh, during the 1950s and early 60s, he had many groupies. John McMaster, the world's first real clear, told me that as he traveled around the world, he met many red-haired babies. Um, then I believe Hubbard became impotent somewhere in the mid 60s and, and was no longer sexually competent. Um, Nibs gives a description saying that that he and his father performed sadistic um, ceremonies, let's say rituals, upon women. And what they would do is they would give, he would give them a mixture, probably an amphetamine and a barbiturate together, so they would have no memory of what had happened to them. They would be put into a hypnotic state. They would strip them down, and then his father would cut them with a razor blade and you know, beat them and, and whatever. And I, when I first saw this sort of material, you know, I didn't believe it. I, you know, I, I was in communication with Nibs in 1984 through an intermediary, and he had quite a lot of questions he answered, and he indeed put out a little tape at that time. But there was one particularly telling thing where he talks about being able to talk a woman into having an orgasm by giving them the right mixture of drugs. And he proved this, a friend of mine in 1985, because Nibs had come back alive and he was selling what he said was the true technology of Scientology. Um, he, he did admit to being something of a rascal um, and not necessarily truthful all the time. So you have to be very careful. I had a friend, as I say, who traveled to see Nibs in, I think he was in Carson City in Nevada at the time. And she wrote me a letter, which I still have, where she said that she had just had sex with the Holy Ghost. 
And I didn't understand that until years later, I read this manuscript where he talks about how you can talk somebody into having a woman into having an orgasm. So there's this other layer that is to do with ritual magic, contempt for women and enslaving people. So to it's sort of vampirism. That's the way I see it, that the Hubbard was a spiritual vampire who basically sucked the power out of people so he could use it for himself and quite a lot of it put in his bank account as well um so there we go that's that's a fairly long statement isn't it would you like to respond to that Karen? i think what is so important in revelations like this is disinfecting the disinformation hmm. Disinformation and propaganda of the church is just uh, swallows poor newbie. We should do a video one day on five things the church won't tell you. Uh, attention, new Scientologists, five things you will only discover later on. And boom, 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 bombshell, bombshell, bomb, just the five top ones. To, and, and, and it's addressed to newbies. Who yeah. now think that they have wandered into this Disneyland of spiritual, fabulous highs and growth. And mm. so, but um, it's a very good idea. Yeah. I, I, I'd like to do that. One, one I, I think that you disinfect disinformation, John. You've got so many facts, so much knowledge. What I'd like to do in the next show with you is to. I've got all the different versions of OT8. I'd oh. like to show you and discuss with you what exactly they run on OT8. Mm. Yeah. Because truth revealed. <laughs> yeah. And just give a little bit of teaser about it. Every single identity you ever come up with in all your Scientology history. If you wrote, I was in the Roman Empire and I was a gladiator and I was on a slave ship and I was getting whipped, blah, blah. So gladiator, Roman centurion, slave. Every identity is culled out of your past history. And then they've taken away that Hubbard was the Antichrist. It opens with uh, checking these identities and you're asked, is it yours? Is it a BTs? Is this identity, was it an attached spirit? Or is it a gang of attached spirits called clusters? So you're back into the BT, even at OT8, you're doing it. And then right at the end, you are told everything you ever read in Scientology was BT cluster track. None of that was yours. Mm. So all the, if you spent 100,000 on three L's, you didn't get the L, some VT got the L. And, and this is an earthquake to people mm. that none of the auditing. So the EP of OT8, we're going to do, do a snazzy show on it, but the, but the, the, the EP means the final end result yep. you are told you now know who you were not and now you can go find out who you are one million dollars mm. and now you emphatically know because none of these past identities was was yours mm. this spins some people some people Oddly. go into a tailspin yeah. And I want to end off this show with giving you a teaser of what John and I are going to get into. We're really going to get into your million dollar blood, sweat and tears to achieve godhood. But what you find out is <laughs> you are told that all your art that you ever had was run on attached spirits 
and you were none of those things. Mm. Now go away and find out who that's the truth. That's supposedly the truth revealed. But let's 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 do a really stazzy show on that. Yeah. John, right. I, you've you've taken this to a real peak and you've revealed things that counter the disinformation propaganda. Good on you. Thank I'm you. going to give you a big hug and I look forward to seeing you in a month's time. Great. We are on a we are on a ride. Definitely. It, <laughs> it's it's fun. Let's increase it? our 90 miles an hour to 100 miles an hour. Light speed. <laughs> Love you, John. Thank you so much, man. Take care, sweetheart. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Hi, John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you'd click like, as well as subscribe, and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps, and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. Or you can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much.